so this semester, we've been going through the book of 1 Peter. So that's where we're going to be tonight. It's going to be chapter 3, 8 through 22. So we've got a lot of ground to cover, so we're not going to, you know, we've gone 40 minutes before on two verses, so we're not going to do that. Um, but we are going to cover a lot of ground tonight in what God might have for us. But before we do that, I want to tell you of a new project that I'm doing, personally. Um, I have decided that I'm going to farm my backyard. Um, I have a little backyard in, right near Ritter Park, and it is full of weeds, and it looks, quite frankly, terrible. Um, and the other day, my old pastor slash boss came over, and we were looking around, and he literally said, this is embarrassing. <laughs> I mean, he's like 72, so he can say whatever he wants. So he's like, this is embarrassing. How do you have a yard like this? And I'm like, I don't know anything about yards. Like, I, I was an only child growing up, so like, I didn't do chores. Um, I uh, got, got what I wanted. And so he was just like, yeah, this is literally terrible. And he's like, you see these things? I'm like, yeah, those purple flowers? He's like, no, those are weeds. So I'm like, that's not good. And then I realized something. I'm like, okay, I get the weeds thing, but why are there so many brown patches all over my yard? And this is a first-time confession. I have not even confessed this to my lovely wife yet. Um, back in the day when I was attempting, before the winter, to make my yard better, I decided that I was going to try to kill the weeds. So I Googled and found weed killer spray. Now, what they don't tell you is that not all weed killers are made equal. Some of them kill weeds. Some of them kill weeds and everything else they touch. <laughs> Courtney, I hate to tell you this. The reason that our grass is brown is because I thought, I'm going to use this spray, and I'm going to spray the yard where the weeds are. Um, so we have brown patches. Anyways, all that to say this, I got to thinking. This is a new project for me. I'm not very handy. I have never really fixed anything. Um, but I thought, I want to do this. For a lot of reasons. Number one, I just think it would look pretty. Number two, we're going to grow vegetables out there. It's going to be nice for our backyard. But more importantly, it's serious. I want to learn a lot about ministry. I want to learn about ministry doing this. Um, uh, I read something today where a guy, listening or reading, I can't remember, but he said, ministry and pastors should be a lot more like farmers than they are CEOs. And I thought, that's pretty profound. Because what do we think a lot of times? Like with ministry, we think get the right things in place, get the profit margins right, people flood the doors, we give them our product, and then we hope they go sell it. Right? And uh, a lot of times we do ministry like that. Right? Man, if we can just get the stage right, we can just get the right people, pick the right time, maybe all this will work and, and it'll just click. But if you notice, every single time Jesus talks to his followers in the Bible, it's farming metaphors. Kingdom of God is like a seed you put in the ground and it grows. Sower, sow the seed, trust the Lord for growth. So I thought, you know what? I want to learn to be a better minister through this project. So I'm going to give you my update. So far, what I've learned. The first thing I did after buying 30 pounds of tall fescue mix grass seed at the Milton Farmhouse was I called my dad. Now, that's not too weird, right? Like, wow, like, call my dad. If you know my dad, he's an incredible man, always happy. But he's not handy either, hence why I'm I am. But I thought it was weird that something even that I know he doesn't really know about, I still call my dad first. And I was thinking, I was like, man, in ministry, like we're looking out. And like we're just starting this ministry. We're looking out even in our own personal lives as um, even like sanctification that God's doing work on us is a lot like gardening. You know, you till up the soil, you plant the seed, you harvest. And I thought... Like my dad, who is not super competent in yard working. Got to work on the verb there. I don't know what you call it. Work in the yard. 
but I still call my dad. And I think we look out in ministry, and we have these visions and dreams and plans. We want to make, these, make all this stuff happen, get a student serve team launch in the fall. But at the end of the day, we can go get all the right pieces, all the right grass seed, put all the things out there. But if we get no help from our dad, who is omnicompetent, our Heavenly Father, we've got no shot in making this thing go. It's not going to grow without God. It's not gonna, you're not going to be like Jesus without God. Um, so that's what I'm learning so far. I'm going to start this weekend with my dad. I'm excited. Um, but I think just as we're looking out, I'm telling you, we're ready for this student serve team thing, man. Like Jake Bradley's graciously read through it so far. It is 57 pages long, 10,000 words playing for the fall. <laughs> Serious. That's what I was doing over spring break. Um, and, and like we're going to have the stuff ready. We're going to go at it. But we're going to beg our dad to bring the growth. And how he does that is through his word. So let's, let's lean in tonight. As, as we get ready to see what God might do. And before we go, I'm going to pray for us, um, and then we will go at it. So, Father, I ask right now you would slow us down. We would not be tempted to think that if we can just think the right thought, that we might just become more holy, or if we can go to the right ministry, or if we can go to the right church, that somehow our life's going to feel whole and complete. God, we need you. So we're asking you right now, would you do a work in our hearts? Would you use this passage and this broken person saying words about it? Would you do something that might change the history of our campus and our city? And Lord, we just pray for Kai right now. That if she may be asking questions to you right now, pray you would answer them. She might know that you are true, that you are life. You would use someone like Morgan. You would use anyone to bring her into your kingdom. But God, we're going to throw seeds on the ground. and We're going to work the soil, but Lord, we know you must grow it. Just God, do something tonight. It's your name I pray. Amen. Okay. So before we look in verse 8, I want to remind us at what really Peter is trying to do over and over and over again in this book. He seems to think that if you're going to live well and do ministry in this broken world as a sinful person, that you have to remember who you are. He, the Lord, really, all throughout the New Testament and the whole Bible, uses many words, many, much of our time reading His Word, trying to remind you that you are in Christ. He uses deep theological things. He uses practical little metaphors. He just says it over and over again. And ultimately that we just need to remember that if you are a believer in Jesus, you are in him. In a first Peter-shaped way of saying that you are in Christ, Peter uses the words, you all probably know if you've been with us, we are elect exiles. So elect means chosen. This, this word, this elect, this chosen word is full of pointers to a sovereign God who loved us before we even knew who we were, chose to die for us, gave us faith to believe. You are saved. Like, if you want to operate in this broken world, remember, you are a saved person. And don't think, like, don't wear saved as like a badge of honor, as if it's something that you earned. Like, think about what the word actually means. Like, if I'm drowning in a lake, and someone jumps in and grabs me, takes me to the shore, resuscitates me, I don't walk around thinking, man, do you see the way that I stayed afloat in the lake? No, what do I say? That person saved me. 
You are a saved person. You are chosen. When we had no hope, He saved us. God did the work to give us salvation. That makes us an elect person. Remember, when you hear salvation, don't just think the moment in time when I decided to surrender my life to Christ. Now, I want you to love that time. That is a time that happened and God worked in your life. But when First Peter, I think that what Peter's trying to do is showing us that salvation is not just that one moment, but it's God's wooing of you before you were saved. It was God setting His love and affection. It's the Son having us in mind 6,000 miles away 2,000 years ago to die for us. It's the Spirit causing us to be reborn. It's the Spirit continuing to make us look more like Christ. And ultimately, it's God finally bringing us home. So we say salvation. We're not just saying this one little moment back when I was six at camp. It's all that God has done to bring us to Himself. And since He is in control of your salvation... And if that salvation has something to do with you becoming more like Christ, that means He is in complete control of everything you experience in this world. Every suffering you encounter, God says it's for your good. Which brings us to the next part of that identity for us. We're elect, but we're also exiles. What's that mean? It means you're not home yet. If you're in exile, you don't belong here. This world is not your final hope We have to fight to not have our home here. Sometimes we get so comfortable thinking that this is as good as it gets, but God is calling us as elect exiles to be holy and distinct because we belong in heaven. Now, we're not there yet, obviously, right? There's still brokenness. Sorry, Andrew keeps dropping that. It's hysterical. Um, There's still brokenness in our world, which means we have a mission to do. Remember 1 Peter 2.9 says this, But you are a chosen race, A royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Why? That you may proclaim, it's the orange word, I'm highlighting it, the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Don't you forget, you are not these things in Christ so that you can sit and keep going to different things. You are called to proclaim, proclaim light. In darkness. And listen, so many of us get bored with our Christian walk. We get bored, we get apathetic, we become off kilter spiritually, even worse, we maybe get depressed. And I think, honestly, somewhere deep in that, part of us, we just boiled down our walk with Christ to a bunch of things we're supposed to do, things we're supposed to avoid, and disciplines we're supposed to keep. And we forget that we were saved to proclaim, to abandon ourselves into a purpose. Into an adventure, or if you want a violent metaphor, into a war of stepping into the darkness to advance the gospel and make disciples. Check your heart. If you are bored, you are thrown off, you are apathetic, you want nothing to do with Jesus, you might not be following him. Because what he's doing is saving you to proclaim his light in the darkness. And when you get there, all of a sudden spiritual disciplines don't really become disciplines. You just want to know them more so you can go proclaim more. And they won't be burdensome because you're going to be doing what you were made to do. But don't get fooled. There's a lot of life and joy and peace that comes with following Jesus, but there's an enemy that hates you. There's an enemy in you, your flesh, that hates the things of God, loves sin. The enemy 
We're going to learn in chapter 5, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone he may devour, and there's a broken world that works against the grain of what the church is trying to do. So let's keep looking at 1 Peter to learn more about what does it mean of who I am, how do I proclaim this light, and what do I do when the brokenness fights back and I experience suffering. Let's look at verses 8 through 12. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. But on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Let's look at that first (coughs) verse 8. Finally, all of you. Five things there. Have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, tender heart, humble mind. I think it's important to know this is for all of us, right? We've kind of gone through kind of things for husbands, things for wives, things for servants, kind of these different roles. And now he's saying, all right, all these different distinct roles that we have in the kingdom of God. This is for all of us. Here's the things we have to have. You're taking notes. I'll try to give you some definitions. As the people of God, we should have unity of mind. This is a common mindset, an agreement on the essential ideas of God, the world, salvation. And listen, this does not mean we all assimilate to the same type of person and walk in a straight line and be a, a, a type. We all bring in different gifts, different personalities, different flavors to us, but there should be a unity of mind about the things of God. Next is sympathy. This is feeling what others feel so that you can give them what they need. <laughs> feeling what others feel so you can give them what they need. And I, I, you're going to hear me say this a lot. I, I call this just the ministry of presence. There's something special about just existing beside a broken brother or a broken sister and just giving them what they need in that time. And listen, this is not the same thing as saying, I know how you feel. Because if you really knew how they felt, you wouldn't say that. <laughs> You've been there, broken, beaten up. Someone might really know how you feel. And you're thinking, no, you have no idea how I feel. Sympathy. Feeling what others feel so you can give them what they need. Brotherly love. The church isn't like family, but it is family. Not a cold distance, not a superficial niceness about us. No, we're going to... Follow the Lord and push back the darkness and proclaim His light. We've got to be a people who love each other like family. A humble mind. Actually thinking God is bigger and better than you. And using your mind to serve others and not to convince yourself that you are better. Now listen, these aren't just outward actions we're going to try to do better by the grit of our, our own strength. These are outward actions that come from an inward change when you understand what God has done for you in Christ. You were sinful, he loved you, he saved you, and he commissions you to go into this dark world and have these qualities, not to earn salvation, but to live it out. Look at verse 9. This is the hardest verse in the whole book, I think. Do not repay evil for evil, or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. So this verse 9 shows us, what these five characteristics look like. This is a way that we proclaim light. This is a way that we exemplify those five characteristics. And I just want to ask, is this really saying that we should bless those who do evil to us? Yeah. 
And I'm thinking, what? No, what if they did this? No. Bless. Notice, literally part of your calling as a follower of Jesus is to bless people who do evil to you. I don't really know how to make that sound better. You want a way to proclaim light? Push back darkness? Let that person who's full of darkness, who's evil to you, bless them. Now, don't get weird at the end of this verse. It looks like it's saying that you have to bless evil people to earn eternal life. You see that? That you may obtain a blessing. Uh, Gospel logic says a person who has the blessing of eternal life and the guaranteed future of it will increasingly have these characteristics. And you'll see your mind, your heart, and your will be able to obey these difficult commands. Ask yourself, is there anyone in your life that's done so much wrong to you that you refuse to love them or bless them? You need to reconcile with that. That's tough. Verse 10. Here's the grounding. So it's like, be like this. Here's what it looks like. Four, here's why. Whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it, for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So it's weird, right? So all of a sudden Peter quotes Psalm 34, 12 through 16. That's what that part is. And he says, the reason why we do this, for this is true. Now, I don't want to break down all of this. You can read that for yourself. But it looks like a reason for doing this is because the psalmist promises a loved life and good days for it. Is that, is that fair? To this you recall, you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desert, desires to love life and see good days, do this. Now, this should start to rub you the wrong way. Because all we've done is talk about... The world is broken, you're sinful, there's an enemy who hates you, life is going to be hard, and all of a sudden, Peter has the audacity to say, well, if you bless the people who are mean to you, then you'll love your life and your days will be good. We know this can't mean no suffering, but we can take the word at its word and know this must be the best way to live life. Well, you believe it. And don't just say you believe it, because what you believe is actually what you obey. Every time you refuse to bless those who have done evil to you, you are saying that you do not believe that is the best way. If you belong to the Lord, His eyes are on you. He hears your prayers. And even when the wicked come at us and darkness seems too much, the Lord is against them and we win. That should build a confidence in you. Like He's saying, it's really tough, it's dark. Go in that, bless the evil people. But the Lord is against those who do evil. Now, this confidence that you should have, this should not be a strutting around like you're better than everyone, but it should be a confidence to go humbly serve, love your enemies in hopes that God may save them, unafraid of the consequences because everything is for our good, even the seemingly bad things. He keeps making the argument. Look at 13. I love this. Now, who is there to harm you if you were zealous for what is good? So rub you all like, what? These Christians are persecuted They might have seen their families lit up and burnt, killed just for being Christians. And Peter just goes, 
who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? I would want to write back and be like, I don't know, everyone else that's burnt my family? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, look at that, when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. So let's get, let's get bold in ministry. I love this first question. It's kind of like a pump-up speech, right? Like, all right, guys, go into the darkness. You want to love your life? Have good days. Just bless those who are evil. Who is there to harm you? <laughs> You're thinking, well, that person hurt me. That person might not like me if I go there with them. And Peter's saying, who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? First question, I'll admit, it does seem a little insane, right? Is Peter assuming that because the Lord is watching us as his righteous ones, is he assuming that we cannot be harmed? Seems like the whole point of the letter is the opposite, right? Like, because you're zealous for what is good, they might light you on fire. I think for us as the people of God in an increasingly hostile environment to our faith, we have to remember the distinction between temporal harm and ultimate harm. Because what he can't mean is they might, who is there to harm you, church, that has been experiencing persecution if you're zealous for what is good? He's not thinking, who is there to persecute you? Who is, not, who is there to beat you up for claiming Christ? He can't mean that. But he's saying that we as the people of God, using all of our energy to do good, especially to those who hate us, when we do that, God's sovereign, powerful, caring eyes are on us. And even when we are harmed, it's not ultimately harmful because nothing takes us out of God's hands. Listen, you got to believe that. Like... You can take these promises and toss them aside if you don't plan on stepping up the semester and pushing back the darkness. And it might be pretty comfortable for you. He's saying, you're going to save you for this. We're going to go in. We're going to bless those who are evil. They're going to harm you. But who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? Because no one touches God's children. Even our suffering is a blessing because we get to be more like Jesus. And our hearts are prepared for even more glory in heaven. Suffering for righteousness' sake is the true blessing in this world. Like, we, get, we don't need to let hashtag blessed type of blessings throw our hearts off for what is actually life-giving. Yes, enjoy the comforts of life. God is blessing us in that way. But it seems to me that the Bible makes so much effort to say... What is actually a blessing is living against the grain of the world. And if you suffer for it, you're more like Jesus. Remember, some of us are bored because we haven't joined in on this life of living out God's purposes. He keeps going. Have no fear of them. I, I just imagine. It's, it's hard enough for me to hear this as a 21st century American. But I'm imagining like these persecuted Christians, the government's against them, everything stacked against them in the world. He's saying, have no fear. <laughs> Don't worry about that. Nor be troubled. We are called to have no fear. Why? Because nobody can harm us. Because everything done to us is a blessing. If you're suffering, you become more like Jesus. 
If you're killed, you're with Jesus. Sums it up, right? You're either going to suffer or die. But in contrast to being scared, we're supposed to honor Christ in our hearts. So focus on His holiness. Trust Him. Honor Him. Love Him more through as things get harder. And we stay prepared to give an answer to anyone who asks why we have hope. Listen, I honestly think this is implying that we should be living away in an evil, broken world, living in a way that people wonder what's wrong with us. Like, why would he say that? Like, have no fear, don't be troubled, honor Christ as holy, and when people ask, be ready to give them a defense for the reason you have hope. Think about looking at a Christian who is full of joy and open to loving, even as they are slandered and they keep blessing the person who is sinning against them. People want that kind of joy. Some people in this world get slandered and they're broken and they're done. We, by the power of the Spirit, can be people who take the hits and keep blessing. Let's be prepared. If I ask you right now, come on up, microphone, why do you have hope? Could we do it? Yeah, we have hope because Jesus suffered too, because He died and rose again and now controls everything for our good, and we know we can trust His commands because they are for our joy. That is why we have hope. Be ready to explain that to a dark and watching world. Like, let's get gritty here. Don't, I, I love this ministry because this never feels like a performance to me. I don't put on the Superman cape and get up here and just think, I've lived a whole life of being slandered all week and no one can harm me because I'm zealous for what is good. No. I'm broken. I'm desperate to live out this kind of life because I believe this is where the most joy is found. Let's get there. Remember, I love these instructions. Have a defense for the reason you have in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you're slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. So we're so humbled and so loving that even when the people get mad at us for loving them over and over again, that they're put to shame and not us. Why? For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Here's what this could look like. Think about it. You wake up on a Tuesday morning, you get in the Word, you pray, the Lord will give you open doors to share your faith. Roll into class, maybe get chewed out by a teacher in a discussion for saying something in accordance with your faith, and instead of getting weird and defensive and indignant, you're respectful and gently give her a reason for your hope. Your unbelieving classmate catches you after class and wants to know how you just did that. <laughs> this could happen. How'd you... Are you not mad? They just chewed you out? You give them a reason for your hope. You tell them your joy is not found in the teacher liking you or your grades, but in Christ. And they listen, and you think they're in, and they decide you're an idiot too, and make fun of you some more, and then just kind of walk away. But you still text them the next day to remind them of the test coming up on Friday. And you still bless them, and you still love them. Why? Because nobody can harm you. You were saved to be a light and to suffer and to bless a broken world like Jesus. Now, these last verses will drive us home. 18. Four. I love that. It's going to be tough. You could be called to evil getting done to you. You're going to keep pressing in. You're going to keep blessing because of who you are in Christ. For Christ also suffered once for sins. The righteous 
for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God. Being put to death in the flesh. I'm going to go ahead and let you a little warning here. The rest of this verse gets really weird, so be ready. But being made alive in the Spirit, in which He went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. And baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven, is at the right hand of God, with angels, authorities, and powers, having been subjected to him. Now, let's focus on the part that makes sense first. Christ suffered once for sins. He was righteous. The people he suffered for were evil. They were his enemies. Us. Why? That he might bring us to God. Now listen. Christ is our example, but the main reason he died was to bring you back to God. Never forget the main point of the gospel. Yes, it's for joy. Yes, it's for forgiveness of sins. Yes, it's so that one day you're in heaven. But most importantly, it is to bring you back to God. You need God more than anything. You were designed to worship, love, trust, and obey God. And your sin keeps you from that. And Christ died to do away with the one thing you actually need. And listen, if you're in here and you don't follow Christ, I have news for you. You're not... You don't seek God on your own. A lot of times we hear people saying that's a seeker of God. The Bible says no one seeks God. It's more appropriate to say that that person who thinks they may be seeking God are actually seeking things that only God can give them. Jesus died to bring us back to Him. And look what He does after death. This is where we've got to go a little teaching before we celebrate and sing. Okay, so He's being put to death in the flesh made alive in the Spirit, in which, so in that Spirit, He went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared. Now, we've got to break this down. This is very interesting. So Jesus dies on the cross. What happens when we die? Our body and our soul separate. That's what death is, it's separation. His body goes in the grave. His soul clearly goes to a place of the dead or a place where spirits are in prison. Now, people are pretty split on this, all right? Some people say this is referring to Jesus in spirit. So this is before he took on flesh, okay? Preached to the evil people that mocked Noah for being a righteous man and obeyed God. That's what some scholars would say. That's what it's talking about. Pre-incarnate, pre-flesh Jesus preached to the people in Noah's day. Some say that Jesus, before he rose from the dead, says like what happens on Saturday, on Easter weekend, went to the place of the dead, or Sheol, the grave, liberated the Old Testament saints who were awaiting his final liberation, proclaimed victory over the spirits in prison who rejected him and all the demons who hate him, or it kind of sounds like to me he does a victory lap over death. He's about to tell him what he's going to do. It's like, all right, I died on the cross. Here's my soul. Body's up there. Y'all lose. I win. I'm going to get the body. I'm going to rise again. We're going to start this church thing. Now, before that gets really confusing, a quick understanding of what Sheol even is. 
In the Old Testament, Sheol is a, was a place for the dead. So both righteous people, people who believed in God, and unrighteous people, people who didn't. They all went to Sheol. It was Sheol split. There was a righteous room, for lack of a better metaphor, of Sheol and an unrighteous room for Sheol. Okay? In the New Testament, you might have heard this, Sheol is called Hades. You heard of Hades probably in Greek mythology? Okay, so that's, it's called, that's not real, but it's called Hades. We have Hades proper, which is a place of torment. So you go to the grave, and if you did not follow Jesus, you did not believe in God, you're in a place of torment, or you're in a place of rest, sometimes called Abraham's bosom. You maybe heard that before, Abraham's bosom. So I love this. If this is true and the second interpretation is correct, which I will not die on this hill, but it looks like when Christ died, he went down to the place of dead, ripped the gates off the hinges, and brought all the people who have been awaiting his final rescue. And then showed himself victorious over the people who mocked him and have been mocking him his whole life. He let the spirits in Abraham's bosom finally see what they were waiting for, and he proclaimed victory over those in Hades proper. Just so you know, when you die, if you're a saved person, you go to be with Christ in heaven, not Hades, because we have something better than they did, because we are alive after Jesus did his work on the cross and resurrection. Now, don't get caught up in the controversy. If you want to talk more about that, we can chat after. But don't miss the point. Noah and his people were brought safely through the water because God counted them as righteous through their faith. And this has implication for us. Look at 21 and 22. Baptism which corresponds to this. So it corresponds to the Noah and the ark story. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven, is at the right hand of God, with angels, authorities, and powers having being subjected to Him. So baptism, when we celebrate here on Sunday mornings and we dunk people in the tub, corresponds to this. Because it is an appeal to God for a good conscience. Now I know that it says baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. This sounds weird, but that, it doesn't mean that baptism saves you. What it's saying is that the actual act of baptism is a testament of the salvation that God did. We are only saved through faith in Jesus Christ and His death and resurrection. And we prove that salvation, not earn it, by being saved. Baptized. And as Jake and Kelly come back up, here's, here's the big point before we celebrate and sing tonight. Here's, here's the point of all this. In our brokenness, who we are in Christ, wrestling with pushing back darkness. You need to know that Jesus is in heaven right now. He is reigning. He is not dead. Every evil power is subject to him. Every tough conversation, every tense relationship, every time you've been wronged, all of it. Under his authority. And if you don't know him, you've got to trust him because he's against those who are evil. If you've never thought, as Janet kept saying, you don't have to go to Israel or assimilate to a culture, you have to say yes to Jesus. All of your sin he died for. If you don't know him, trust that. And if you do know him, so know most of us in this room do, trust him with your sin and suffering. Know that He really did take care of the guilt and shame of your sin. And know that every suffering you encounter really is ultimately for your good. Because He cleanses you so we can get back on mission to push back the darkness. And He protects you by making all the bad things of this world actually for 
you're good. Let's pray. Father, as we get ready to sing as people who are truly free, oh gosh, I pray you would give us faith to believe these things, that no one can ultimately harm us, Lord. So if it is your will, put us in harm's way for the sake of others. That's a terrifying prayer. God, I want to be used by you. We in this room, we want to be used by you, whatever the cost, whatever it takes. God, pray as we sing these songs to you that it would be acceptable to you through your son and what he did for us, Lord. Thank you for sending him not just to die, but to tear up death on Saturday and rise again in victory on Sunday. God, we need you. We want to see this ministry grow. We want to see our churches flourish. We want to see our own lives become more holy and less apathetic and more alive to you. So God, through these songs, through these words, by your spirit, I pray you would do a work in here right now. In your son's name I pray. Amen.